Well, we're back in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and uh, what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's a, it's a summary of what Jesus taught in towns and villages around Galilee and Judea. And, and one of the big things that Jesus is proclaiming is that there are two, pay attention to this, there are two and only two kingdoms in this world. There's a, a kingdom is defined by who you serve. In other words, who has your allegiance? And you serve or worship, and who you serve or who you worship defines everything that you do. It determines your way of life and it determines your manner of life. And what Jesus comes and declares is there are only two kingdoms in this world, only two kingdoms. No matter what country you are in or, or born in, no matter what religion that you adhere to, no matter what ethnicity, no matter whether you are rich or poor, there are only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God that is ruled by God. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of this world that is ruled by you or me, and ultimately by Satan himself. Now, there are places where the two kingdoms seem, the difference between them seem really stark. So we have friends as a church, whether you know them or not, we have friends in Southeast Asia uh, and the area that they live in, that they serve in, that they serve the Lord in and proclaim the gospel in, uh, to be baptized in, into Christianity can mean that you are cut off from your family. It can mean that you're cut off from your community. When you declare publicly your faith in Jesus Christ, you are very clearly marking yourself out from all the people who are around you. And you're taking a risk. That they may turn on you. They may reject you. You may not have economic uh, advantages that you would otherwise. The the difference between the two kingdoms seems really stark. A few weeks ago, we we prayed at our worship night. We prayed for the Landis family who is on their way moving to Southwest Asia. To a, a part of the world where literally if you declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ, not only can you be cut off from your family, but you run the risk of actually losing your life. And there are parts in the U.S., right, where, where following Christ puts you at odds with the people and culture around you. To say, I'm going to follow Christ makes you very different from the people at your, your school or at your workplace or your family. But the danger in places like Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, is a little bit different, but it's actually no less dangerous. You, you, I don't know if you picked up, we're going to see it just a second. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus says, beware. He's giving a warning. And he's giving a warning to a people who lived in an area a lot like us here in Myrtle Beach, in the, in the Christian South. We're, we're like the area that Jesus was preaching the message in. They were people who had had the word of God for a long time. For generations, they had been taught the law and how to obey it. And the prevailing culture around them was kind of like the South in that there's a a writer, Flannery O'Connor, who said that the American South is haunted by Christ. And Galilee in Judea was haunted by God the way that we are haunted by Christ. It's a, a cultural Christianity that is around us. But just like any kid who grows up in church will tell you, you can be surrounded by and inundated by the things of God, but yet you can have a heart that's very far from him. 
You can grow up in church in a Christian family and listen to only Christian music, listen to Caleb in the car from to and from uh, your Christian places that you go to in your Christian school. You can be surrounded by everything that seems to be about Christ. You can be inundated and surrounded by it and yet have a heart that's far from him. And that's scary. That's why Jesus says, beware, and it should scare us. But here's what Jesus is actually getting at here, and it's even scarier. Jesus is saying that you can live out a life that looks like a Christian life or a godly life. You can look and act like the most devout believer, yet be serving the kingdom of this world and not his kingdom. Isn't that scary? Not just that you can know, like, like you can know, like I'm surrounded by everything that's Christian, but I know that I'm not. But it says that what he, Jesus is warning us here is that you can be in the middle of your Christian subculture, surrounded by other Christians, going to church, doing all the things that you're supposed to do, and yet be serving the kingdom of this world. You can not only fool the people who are around you into thinking that your heart is close to God, but you can actually fool yourself. Your giving, your prayer, your fasting, the three things that Jesus highlights in in these passages, your giving, your prayer, your fasting, your service, your worship, your being a part of the setup and teardown team, you're going to the community group, you're getting up and doing your quiet time, all those things, all of it, you can be doing all of them and it can all be empty. And Jesus says, your reward is here and it's over. You can be doing all those things in such a way it's designed to make yourself feel better and it is of no lasting or eternal value. Just the praise and admiration of the people around you or yourself. And this is part of the crisis that I believe that we're in in the American church or the challenge of being a Christian in the American South. There are many of us who carry the label Christian But yet our beliefs and practices, they seem to check all the right boxes, yet our lives ring hollow of the true love and humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus. There are many of us who carry the label Christian, our beliefs, our beliefs check all the boxes, our practices check all the boxes, and yet Your lives ring hollow of the true love, humility, and self-sacrifice of Jesus. And thus we have a stream of people, 40 and under, who are not only streaming out of the church, but even streaming out of Christianity altogether, who are rejecting the church and rejecting Christianity. And here's what they say. They say, I doubt I don't know if I doubt God or I just doubt his ability to work in the lives of people because I don't see that you seem to believe what you say that you believe. I see people who espouse the right things and are doing lots of activity and there's lots of things going on and there's lots of stuff in this in the Christian evangelical industrial complex in America. And yet what I don't see is all these thousands and millions of people who are adherents of this, who say these things and sing these songs. What I don't see in their lives is the humility and self-sacrifice and love of Jesus. And I don't know what to do with that. So either he's not real or Christianity isn't true or something is terribly broken and I'm out. That's what people say as they're leaving right now, particularly young people. That Many people who grew up in the church right now, when they're leaving, they don't necessarily say, I don't know 
that I believe what you believe about God, about Jesus. But what I do say is, I don't know if you believe it enough to change the way that you're living. They see some of the most ardent professors and practicers of Christianity who are vile and mean and uncaring and their business practices and their politics and their friendships and their marriages and their families and their care for the poor and the downtrodden. And what Jesus is telling us is that is expected, but it's also not the way that things should be. And there is a way to change it. Jesus had a very realistic picture of the church. Let's look at that passage again. If you have your Bible or your app, you can turn it to Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand at the street corners that may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16 through 18. We're gonna skip the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna come back to that. We'll be starting that next week. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, like I mentioned before, Jesus starts off this section with a warning. Did you see that? Verse 1, first word, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He gives a warning. He says, beware. He says, there's, there's something you got to watch out for. But before we get into what his warning is, we, gotta, we have to see what he's, what he's saying. He, he says, watch out practicing your righteousness in front of other people in order to be noticed by them. Or like by putting on a show for them. But he is saying that a Christian's righteousness should be practiced or lived out. Did you hear that? A Christian's righteousness should be practiced or lived out. James 2.26, very famous verse. A verse that we throw around very lightly, but actually is a very big warning. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, hear that? For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's the spirit that animates our body that gives us life in the same way that it is faith that animates our works. But there must be works. Galatians 5.25, Paul said, if we live by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been born anew by the Spirit of God, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit. 
We can't earn our right standing with God. We can't even earn our faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians that our, even our faith is a gift. But Jesus, Paul, James, they all tell us that our faith should be practiced. There should be a difference in the life of a believer. There should be things that we do as believers, not to earn favor with God, but because the Spirit of God dwells within us, there should be things that we do, practices that we have that look different from the world around us. In other words, who we are should play out in what we do. Does that make sense? Who we are should then play out in what we do. A pear tree bears pears. A apple tree bears apples. And a believer should bear good works, should practice righteousness before others. And Jesus names three examples. That two of them have to do with our personal worship or devotion to God, and one of them has to do with self-sacrifice for others. So the two examples of our personal worship to God he gives are prayer and fasting. He says, when you pray, and then later, when you fast, he says, don't let it be for others to see, but he acknowledges that we will, as believers, we will pray. We will commune with the Father. In such a way, it's such a beautiful, we don't even have time to, to run down this trail. We'll be talking about the coming weeks as we talk about the, the Lord's Prayer. But he gives the picture of go into your private room and alone there commune with the Father is what he's saying. Not for a show. Not to try to impress people or make them think that you're holy or good. But he is saying that there, there is promise and available for the believer a kind of fellowship and communion with the father who created the heavens and the earth that can be so personal that is alone in a closet or a private place between you and him there are things that my wife and i share inside jokes and a type of intimacy that we share with each other that feels silly and is off inappropriate around other people right and in that same way, there's a type of fellowship that we have together as believers. There also, for the Christian, there's a type of fellowship that we are promised and given between us and the Father that can be that intimate and that precious alone between us and him. Prayer is not a show. Prayer is not a habit. Prayer is not something that we check the box and do. It is not something that we, it is a command that we simply utter words and follow through the motions. Prayer is at its very basic, at a very heart, communion with our heart, with the heart of the Father. If that does not exist there, then don't babble empty phrases because it will do no good. There exists do you know that and experience that? This isn't a, a command saying, go home and commit yourself to this kind of prayer every single day. No, I hope you do, but it's not a command that you should follow through with. It's a, a heart desire that you go and run to a private place and commune with the Father. And if you don't have that kind of thing, if you don't have that kind of intimacy, if that's not what prayer is to you, then maybe Maybe your heart is removed from the Father and you need to be born again so you can experience this kind of intimacy with the God who created you and loves you. He says prayer. He says when you pray, when you pray. 
This was about fasting. What's fasting about? Well, very few of us get excited in talking about it. But fasting is a way of self-denial that reminds us who are earthly, finite beings, that we are earthly and finite. It reminds us that we are not in control and it brings us in a humble place before our Father to recognize that He alone is all that we need. See, here's what food and drink is supposed to do. When we we and God has given us food and drink and it's supposed to be enjo- not only nourish us, but to be enjoyable. And what it should, in a healthy way, whenever we are eating and drinking for the believer, it should, it should remind us, though as wonderful as this is and as nourishing as this is, this was provided, not only provided to me by God, but it's a picture of what it means to commune and to know God. Jesus said, if you drink of this living water, you'll never thirst again. And I am the living bread that you will never be hungry again. And fasting reminds us that he alone fills our deepest longing and our deepest needs our very basic core needs like eating and drinking. And then he said, the personal sacrifice for others, he talks about almsgiving or giving to the poor. He says, when you give alms or when you give to the poor, don't do it for show. Don't put it on Instagram. Don't live stream it. Don't make a big check so everybody can see it, but do it not for the praise of other people to convince them how great you are or to convince yourself how good you are or to convince the person you're giving it to how good you are. But he says, give to the poor, but in such a way that it glorifies me and not you. Because if you get the praise from the people around you, if you get the likes on Instagram, you've already received a reward. Jesus says a follower of Jesus will be marked by a faith that is lived out. But there is a huge difference. There's a huge difference between living out a faith that is within you and trying to earn credit from the people around you or yourself or from God. There's a huge difference between those two things. Most other religions, in fact, almost every other religion incorporates prayer, fasting, or some type of self-denial and giving to the poor. Christianity, Judaism, as he, those are three basic tenets of Judaism as he's uh, preaching to the Jews. Judaism and Christianity are not the only ones. Prayer, fasting, or self-denial, and giving to the poor are almost universal among all religions. But Jesus says there's a, there's a, we'll do these things as his followers in a different way and for different reasons. We do them out of gratitude out of love, out of the motivation of his spirit within us and not in order to earn or get something else. And do you see how that, how that turn, how that difference of heart could turn something that is good into something that is either less good or something that can be hideous in your own heart? You could be somebody who maybe you're in here and you're very wealthy and you give large sums of money to people, you're a philanthropist, and you do many good things, that is great. But yet, if you're doing it in order to earn the favor of people around you, or to look in the mirror and feel good about yourself, or to somehow earn something from God, do you see how that could turn and all of a sudden it could be dark inside? 
can look great for everybody around you, but inside you're, you're doing it out of selfish ambitions and selfish, a selfish heart. You look in the mirror and you say, man, nobody else gave away a million dollars today to that charity. Think of how benevolent and giving I must be. And see, that sounds ridiculous. So most of us don't have a million dollars to give, but it might be your hundred dollars or your $10 or your 30 minutes in prayer or your reading five chapters yesterday morning of the Bible. It's a turn. And that's why he gives us a warning. Jesus tells us that we should be active. Yet he also says, you see that? He says that we should do these things in secrets. Which is kind of confusing because just before this, back in chapter five, he told us that we should live out our good works and glorify our father in heaven. We should live out our good works so the people around us, it says, he says, will see those good works and they will glorify our father in heaven. So what's he saying here? He says we should live out good works so that the people around us can see us and see those good works. But yet he's saying here that we should do these things in secret. Somebody I read this week said that the human heart is so sinful that we're prone to take the things that are private, that should be private, and put them on public display, and take the things that should be on public display and make them private. Is he saying there's some tricky way that's supposed to play out our faith? Is he giving some sort of weird law, like, uh, I, gotta, I have to literally not let my left hand know what my right hand is doing, or I can never let anybody know that I did something or prayed or in fasting and all of a sudden my reward will be gone. Jesus is warning us to not let the good things that we do be done for the wrong reasons. That's what he's getting at. He's getting at the motivation of our heart, which is always the trickier thing. We can find little ways to, to figure out like, oh, how can I do things in secret and therefore still feel good about myself, but yet... He says, the problem is the motivation of my heart. The problem is the reason I do the things that I do. He's he's saying that there's a way to do many right things, but to do them for the wrong reasons and therefore in the wrong ways. And he says, what that does is that negates the rightness of the actions. You follow me? And sometimes what he says is that this fools the server Or the one who is being served, but it never fools the father. Why? Because loving service to the father is the motivation for all the Christians' righteous actions. Hear that? Loving service to the father is the motivation for all the Christians' righteous actions. The underlying desires for the glory of God, not me or anybody else. The underlying desire isn't personal pleasure or comfort or fulfillment removed from God being glorified. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that he gives us the warning and tells us to beware because because the Christian, the true Christian cares about the motivations of their own heart. We should always be checking our own 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 motivations. Why did I just do that? Why did I say that? I was convicted. This is kind of silly. It's just an example. Years ago, you know, I was brought up to be, I'm born in the South, raised to be a Southern gentleman, 
You open the door, you say, yes, sir. You say, no, ma'am. You do all the deal. And, and, I, and I, it hit me one day. I was opening the door at a store or somewhere. I don't remember. And there's, you know, letting people through. I'm just standing there opening the door. And I remember just in a moment, I was convicted. Like, why are you opening that door for them? Are you doing it to actually serve them in some way? Or are you doing it because you like to look like the good guy who's willing to stand back and open the door so they can go through? The Christian cares about and is always aware of trying to sift through the motivation of their own heart. You see, throughout his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been describing a beautiful new kingdom. He's been describing what the lives of his followers, his church will look like, but yet he's acknowledging here the reality in the church that it won't always look like this. He's telling us that there are inside the church nominal believers whose lives look different from the world around them, but yet their motivations are the same. That's what he's saying. What Jesus is describing is what we're going to call this morning an entitled believer. An entitled believer is someone who, no matter what they say they believe, no matter what they say they believe, no matter who they say they are serving in practice, they believe in a God who owes them. An entitled Christian at the core doesn't understand the gospel because the gospel says you are far worse off than you ever thought that you were. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter how bad off you think you are, no matter what a bad person you think that you are, you are worse than that. But in Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. The gospel says you cannot earn anything, but yet Christ has earned it all for you. The gospel, when it works in our hearts, destroys our sense of entitlement, thinking that God owes me anything and realizes that yet in Christ, he has given me everything. But whenever I confuse that and I, and I fall into thinking I can earn or that I'm, God, I'm entitled to something with God, that God owes me something, it creates distrust between me and God. It poisons my own soul. And it turns something that should be good into something that's selfish. An entitled Christian isn't living in the experienced presence of the Father because you cannot live be in the presence of the Father and think that you are owed anything by him. Every example that we have of someone who is suddenly in the presence of God, what do they do? They fall down on their face and they think they're going to die. When someone has not only been in the presence of the Father, but when someone has been in the presence of someone who has recently been in the presence of the Father, they do the same thing. Moses comes down with his face unveiled. He's seen the, he's seen the backside of God. When, when the messenger of God, not even, we don't even know if it was God himself, but an angel shows up. When an angel shows up, people fall down on the ground as if dead. Isaiah said, woe to me for I am undone. For I have seen Woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips. We are suddenly aware of your own sinfulness. God doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything and I'm too broke in order to give him that. And so therefore I just fall down dead. 
Woe is me. I can't give him what he deserves. I can't give him what he is owed. Woe to me. And someone who lives and is in the presence of the Father, the experienced presence of the Father, cannot begin to think that he owes them anything or they're entitled to anything or they can perform any sort of duty, whether for the accolades of man or themselves or him, that will earn them anything that is of any lasting value. An entitled believer is, is thinking about their own inconvenience, their own sacrifice. It's when you do the right thing, but yet all the way through you're thinking, man, I am doing, I hope someone is taking note of this. I hope God Almighty is taking note of this. They're more racked with their own inconvenience and their own sacrifice. And an entitled believer knows just how much they've done. You know what I mean? I'm keeping track. And they know just how much other people around them haven't done or have done. Do you know how you know if you're an entitled believer? It's when something bad happens. I mean, something really bad happens. And you think, why? God, you owed me something different. And before you just nod your head, ask this question, is this me? Is this why I'm so angry all the time? Is this why I'm so dissatisfied with my life and the people around me? Is this why I have trouble with relationships with other people? Is this why I'm disappointed in God? Is this why I'm disappointed in other Christians? Is this why I'm disappointed in the church? Is this why I'm bothered that no one appreciates what I'm doing? Is this why I'm bothered that no one appreciates what I've done or what I've sacrificed? Jesus is saying that the Christian is looking for reward. Did you notice that? He says, if you do it for the accolades of men around you, you've already received a reward, but your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says that about prayer, about almsgiving, and about fasting. Jesus, Jesus is saying that the Christian is looking for reward, but it only comes from one place or one face or one person. A Christian is looking for reward from only one place, from only one face, from only one person, that they're doing it for reasons that the non-believer can't understand and that the entitled believer has forgotten. That the entitled believer's forgotten like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son who stayed with the father and did all the right things. The prodigal son went and wasted his inheritance, part of the father's estate and riotous living. Not only went out and did riotous living, but he wasted it all. He comes home and the father runs to him and puts the ring on his finger and the robe on his back and welcomes him in, kisses him and says, kill the fatted calf, we're having a feast tonight. And the elder brother is off to the side saying, Look at what he did and look at what I have done. Why don't I get the feast and why don't I get the fatted calf? The elder brother thinks that the father or God owes him something and is looking for reward, but a different kind of reward. 
thinking God owes me and looking for reward from him and only from him are very different things. It's the difference between dead orthodoxy and a personal, and a personal commitment to a relationship with the almighty God. That's the difference. It's the difference between a, a propped up God of your own making serving you and your self-actualization and you're dedicating your life and breath to the one and only Lord who is a consuming fire and is served by myriads of angels. But what can change that kind of heart? If you're an entitled believer, a non-believer, and you don't understand why I should live for the pleasure and the, and the presence of God, what can change your heart? Do you, do you see the, the trap in Jesus' teaching here? You can move your giving and your prayer and your fasting to the secret work. You can work hard so nobody can, can see it, and you can still look in the mirror and feel good about yourself for doing so and look down to other people around you for not. It's a secret. No one knows. Look how superior you are. The action changes, but the motivation's the same. See, it's the motivation. You're trapped. Do it for the approval of others. Do it for your own approval. Still, your reward is already earned. It's empty. It's fleeting. And ironically, it is unfulfilling. You're seeking fulfillment, but ironically, it is unfulfilling. You can't get out of it. You can't get away from it. Here's what you need. You need someone greater to serve. You need someone greater to worship. And you need someone worthy enough to take your eyes off of yourself. And there's only one who can take our eyes off of ourselves. There's only one and only one who can pull our attention away. There is only one. There is one, though, who is so gracious and loving that serving for his glory and his glory alone is a joy. There is one who is so gracious and so loving that seeing his smile is a reward. There's one and only one who is so gracious and loving that knowing his fellowship makes the hard things worth it. And there's one and only one who is so gracious and loving that can cause us to suddenly become who are so self-absorbed to become self-forgetful. And his kingdom is not of this world because he is not of this world. Who is this king in this kingdom? He's the suffering servant king. It's when you look upon him that suddenly love is welled up in your heart and suddenly you see another reason to serve and another smile that you want to earn. It's this Jesus who said, Father, forgive them, who whenever he was on the cross, unrighteously being killed, beaten, suffering, his closest friends turning away from him and running away, denying they even know him. When he looks down and sees almost no friendly faces, who are looking at him with scorn and shame and anger, and yet he cries out from the depth of his soul, almost his dying words. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the Jesus who looks at you and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's him, it's that Jesus that we either don't know or have forgotten when we serve for the applause of others and for ourselves. For when you see him, when you see him,
when you see him. I'm not talking about when you see the church. I'm not talking about when you see the, the preacher. I'm not talking about when you see other believers. I'm not when you see him. When you see him, you say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me. And gave himself for me. Jesus doesn't discourage the thought of reward. Jesus said that there's no man who has given up anything in this life, whether house or friends or family. There's no one who has given up anything in life that won't receive it here in this life and in the life to come. What will you receive in this life? What is the reward for this life? It's the pleasure of the Father. Did you see it in the text? Just knowing that the Father who sees in secret He loved me and he gave himself up for me. If I can serve and pray and worship and give to the poor and do whatever is before me, but yet do it for him out of gratefulness for his love that is to me, you know, that yet undeserving and unearned, if I have that pleasure, that's enough. But not only that, but he says the presence of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit is with us. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The believer has reward now in the pleasure of the Father and the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And we have reward in the life to come uninterrupted and unimpeded fellowship with God, the greatest pleasure, but only a pleasure to those who love him, who loved us first. Can you imagine that uninterrupted and unimpeded fellowship with God? Not because you earned it, but because you gave out of a response to what he has given for you. And then I love this picture as we close. We get uninterrupted and unimpeded fellowship with the Father for all eternity, unbroken by sin and death and disease. And yet it gives this picture. It says that we, standing before him, will then take our rewards, the crown that he has put upon our head, the crowns, the rewards that he gives to us, and we will take them and we will cast them back at his feet. Say, so not only do we get pleasure, uninterrupted and unimpeded 
fellowship with you, God, for all of eternity. But you caused me to do these things. It's your love that caused me to love you. It's your love that caused me to love the people around me. And so therefore, I take the crown, I take the rewards that you've given me, and I cast them back at your feet and say, you did them there for your glory and for your honor. I get to turn around to the end and use those things for eternity, for praise and glory of the one and only one who gave himself up for us. To the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, we will worship him. What a pleasure. Believer, he loved you and he gave himself up for you. That's the motivation for good works. Non-believer, if you're here, welcome. He loved you. Hear this. He loved you and he gave himself up for you. He's not waiting for you to give yourself up for him. He didn't look around and wait for you to make a move towards him. He loved you and gave himself up for you. The only reasonable response is to turn around and fall at his feet and give him all that you have. And experience love and grace, the pleasure of the Father, the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and the life to come uninterrupted and unimpeded fellowship with God who loved you and gave himself up for you. And that's where we're getting ready to celebrate together as a family. That God, your Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. So therefore, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come as we continue to worship together. There'll be two stations, each with the body and blood of Christ in the bread and in the cup. If you're a believer in Christ today, no matter where you call home, come this morning and take it. And let that be the tangible reminder to you this morning that he loved you and gave himself up for you. It's not the other way around. And if you're not a believer this morning, it's a meal for believers. But today, today can be the last Sunday that you sit there and don't participate in communion, not being a born again believer of God. That could be today. It can change your life, can change your eternity. Will it be great forever? <laughs> no. It'll be hard, but it'll be hard with Jesus. And that is a totally different life. I'm going to pray. They're going to come forward. We're going to sing together. If you're a believer, come as you see fit. Partake of the body and blood of Christ. And let's worship our risen Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us.